0: Our mission at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want people to come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so we're the ones that God is using to go and and share share this message of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. And then we want people to follow Jesus, to to live their life for him. Um, so, So with that, we've been going through the book of Acts. And we've been calling this series The Action of the Church because that's what the book of Acts is about. After Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, he passed the baton of faith and and told the church, this is what you're to do. You're to go and make disciples of all the nations. So Acts 24 is where we're going to be at this morning, from verse 1 through verse 26, and I'm calling this sermon a man of conviction. I've got a couple quotes I want to share with you this morning. Abraham Lincoln said... The probability that we may fail in a struggle ought not to deter us from the support of a cause that we believe to be just. Winston Churchill said that a kite rises against the wind, not with it. A man by the name of Lester Roloff said, I don't live by preference, I live by conviction. And lastly, uh, Charles Spurgeon, maybe one of the the greatest preachers of the modern era, says, none knows the pangs of conviction but those who have endured them. This is who we see in the Apostle Paul and how he's living his life for for the kingdom of God. And so today we're going to be in Acts 24. But let me bring you up to speed of what, what has happened so far in the book of Acts. Paul has, uh, has was in, was left, started his missionary journeys in Antioch, and he has just completed his third mission trip. He's back in Jerusalem, and this will be the last time that he sees the city of Jerusalem alive. He, he had gone into the temple, and he was going to, to worship God and also to, to bring um, so an offering. And then there was these guys who were telling lies about him, all these false things they were preaching about telling about the apostle Paul. Well, one of the lies they were saying is that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. That's a big, big no-no. And so with that lie, a riot erupts and there's several Jew, ruling Jewish men that come and they, they grab Paul and they're going to tear him limb from limb. They wanted to kill Paul because something that they supposed happened. And before they have a chance to murder Paul, there's a guy, uh, Luke refers to him as the the tribune of the cohort. This is the guy that's in charge of Jerusalem at this time. He's there to make sure a riot doesn't break out, okay? Rome is very, very concerned about a riot. And anybody that tries to start a riot, they're going to treat it very harshly. Well, this man is a man by the name of Claudius Lysias. He comes and he grabs Paul before he can be killed. And then he's dragging Paul away. Maybe you remember this. He, I, I said, they're like hauling him like a piece of furniture. And Paul says, hey, can I address my, the crowd for a second? And they say, sure. And so Paul addresses these guys who are just about to kill him. And he says, hey, you know, there's this day that I was on the road to Damascus. And suddenly there was a bright light, so bright it knocked me to the ground. And then there was this voice from heaven that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you remember that? That was a powerful testimony. The the day that Jesus changed the life of a man named Saul. Well, Paul is sharing this with the Sanhedrin, these ruling Jewish men. And they're listening very contently on every word he says until he says one word. He says that God has sent me directly to the Gentiles. And when Paul said that, these men lost their minds. Because okay? they believed that the only reason that God created Gentiles was to fan the, the flames of hell. These ruling Jews, they believed the only reason the God of the universe made Gentile people was to burn in hell. And so when Paul said that Gentiles have equal access to God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, these guys lost their minds even more, if that's even possible. And so then Claudius Lysias has to grab Paul again while the getting's good because they're going to kill him a second time. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on with this Paul guy. And so he takes him to the Antonio Fortress. He's going to whip a confession out of him. If whipping or a flogging involves a small wooden dowel about yay long. And then there's nine pieces of leather that come off it. And each end of the leather is either bone or glass, most likely metal. I picture like fishing hooks. And they would use that to remove the flesh from the individual's body. Well, Paul lets the guy know with the whip, Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Well, you can't whip a Roman citizen. It's illegal. And so Paul saves himself from that. But then he stands in front of the Sanhedrin again for trial number two. And very quickly, another riot erupts. Paul's two for two with starting a riot with these guys. He's really good at getting under their skin. And then he's put back in jail... And then his nephew shows up on scene. The Apostle Paul has a nephew. read it in the chapter before. And the nephew says, "Hey, there's 40 guys that have made an oath they're neither going to eat nor drink until they have killed the Apostle Paul." And so that boy is then taken to Claudius Lysias and shares that news with him. And so Claudius Lysias gets 470 Roman soldiers There's going to guard the, the Apostle Paul and get him to Caesarea. It's in Caesarea, they he is gonna, going to stand before the Roman procurator of Judea. Well, if you've been going to church for a, for a while, you hear procurator or governor, you probably think of Pontius Pilate, because Pontius Pilate was the procurator, the governor of Judea during the time of Jesus. Well, Pilate's gone, and Felix is the guy that's running the show now, and so this is the guy that, Pil- that excuse me, Paul is standing in front of. He's, he's in this huge outdoor amphitheater that looks at the, the Mediterranean Sea. And on the other side, there's other, on the stage, the prosecution has, has their witnesses. They also have a prosecution attorney that's going to make accusations against Paul and all he's been doing. With that, let's read Acts 24, verse 1. It says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and his spokesman." one Tertullius, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to to accuse him, saying, Since through you we've enjoyed much peace, and since by your forethought, most excellent Felix, reforms have been made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude, but do not, but to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews. Throughout the world is a ringleader of a set of Nazarenes. So this man, Tertullius, this prosecution attorney, has called Paul a plague. He called him a disease. He said that Paul is a ringleader of a set of Nazarenes. That, that, that term there, Nazarenes, this is the first and only time it appears in our New Testament. And if you remember earlier, it was when in Antioch that, that the, the believers were first called Christians. To call somebody a Christian, you're saying, oh, you think you're a follower of that Christ. You think you're a bunch of little Christ running around. Well, now they're being called Nazarenes. Nazarenes is a derogatory term, too. Jesus was from Nazareth. And Nazareth was a, a nothing of a little postage stamp of a town. So to call somebody a Nazarene, you're calling them a hillbilly. You're calling him a redneck. And so now they're saying these Christians are a bunch of, of uh, lowlifes. They're saying you're a follower of that guy from Nazareth that nobody likes. Tortilius goes on. Look in verse 6. Oh, wrong one. Here, verse 6. He then tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him of. The Jews also joined in the charges, affirming that these things were so. Let me address an issue, in case you're reading from a different version. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, okay? And so maybe you're reading from a different version, and it appears to to you, maybe, I skipped over verse 7. I didn't skip over verse 7. The translators of the English Standard Version did. You see, we need to recognize, when, when this Bible was translated, what was happening, the translators of the ESV, they got as many manuscripts as they could. There's thousands and thousands of manuscripts, and they're, they're translating from the Greek manuscripts. Well, verse 7 doesn't appear in the oldest known manuscripts, so it's believed it's a scribal insert, okay? What's a scribal insert? Let, let me, this is going to be some interaction. You're going to get to participate in this. If you write in your Bible, raise your hand. Raise them high so people can see. It's okay. Nothing wrong with writing your Bible. Now look around. Look at the people. See how we write in our Bibles? That's okay. Now picture your, that your Bible is your handwriting. And then you have a little margin on the side. Maybe you said something about that verse that really grabbed your attention. Well, And then some, you leave your Bible and somebody comes behind you and they're going to copy from your Bible. And so they're reading this, they're like, well, that's the same handwriting. Is that the verse? Is that not the verse? What's going on here? Well, somewhere along the way, somebody included verse 7. So when the translators of the ESV came, and verse 7 wasn't the oldest known manuscript, well, they say, well, that must be a scribal insert. It's not that verse 7 is wrong, it's that Luke didn't write it. And we want to study only what Luke wrote, so that's why... Verse 7 is not in the ESV, and there's a couple other modern translations also. So don't throw your baby out with the bathwater. It just means that's most likely a scribal insert. So here the trial begins, and there's this prosecuting attorney, that guy by the name of Tertullius, and he's obviously a Hellenistic Jew because he has a Roman name, but Tertullius is is a lawyer for the Sanhedrin, and he's there to represent their case to Antonio Felix, and Tertullius is laying it on thick he's bringing a heavy charge but he's also really sucking up to governor Felix let me paraphrase in pastor John's translation what he said he basically said oh Felix you're so awesome you know, we we have it so good because of you you're so smart you're so wise and man we're just lucky to have you Felix I don't like this guy he, he, he's he's a suck up And then he lays his accusations toward Paul. He says in verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming these things were so. So picture the scene. Paul's on trial. There's Tertullius that holds the the life of the Apostle Paul in his hands. And there's the prosecution attorney that's there bringing charges, and the Sanhedrin's there. And they're all nodding their heads, going, Yeah, yeah, what what he said. We hate this this Paul guy. And now Paul's going to give his defense. Paul's going to stand up, but Paul's all alone. Paul doesn't have a defense attorney. He's going to represent himself, but he is a brilliant man. He also has the Holy Spirit with him. You know, I've heard it said that if you have God on your side, then you're in the majority. Okay? These guys have their lawyers. They have the Sanhedrin, but Paul has God. And so Paul is in the majority. Keep reading. Look in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to, to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since uh, I went to worship in Judea. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, neither in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they, can they prove to you what they now bring up. Against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, hear that the way, that's what they called Christians. According to the way, which is a sect, I worship God, of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. So Paul's defense is really crystal clear and it's very simple. He says, I didn't stir up any trouble, he says, I didn't start a riot. He's saying, all this happened 12 days ago. There's other eyewitnesses. We can go and get them. I didn't do any of these things that they're saying against me. Now remember, Rome is in charge. And they will treat riots very, very harshly as anybody's trying to start a riot. And Paul says, but I confess to you that according to the way. Again, that's Christianity. Maybe you remember John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. But then Paul says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Let me ask you a question. As you sit here today and you hear this message, can you say that? Do you believe the things written in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets? Do you believe, believe this, the story of creation written in Genesis chapters 1 and 2? Do you believe how sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3? Do you believe the story of Moses and the, and the let my people go and the ten plagues uh, uh, on, and in Egypt? Do you believe that? Do you believe the parting of the Red Sea? Do you, do you believe the story of Jonah and, the, and he, how he's swallowed by the great fish? I ask that because all the time there's people say, well, I believe in the Bible, I just don't believe in all that supernatural stuff. Well, if that's you, then you don't believe the Bible. Okay? Uh, It's either you believe it or you don't. The Bible is not a buffet where you can come through and pick and choose what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. Most people treat the Bible like a buffet. Oh, fried chicken? Yes. Can I have dark meat only, please? Mashed potatoes, yes, a lot of mashed potatoes, lots of gravy. Would you like some pie? Two pieces. You want to eat vegetables? No, I don't want that vegetable stuff. That's way too healthy. The Bible is more like eating at my grandma's house. If you ever went to my grandma's house, there's some good stuff that's going to be put on your plate. There's going to be some stuff that's not so good. And guess what? You're going to eat every bite of it. And I don't care if you like it or not. You're going to eat it all. You're going to be a clean plater. That's what my grandma called me. Why? Because it's for your good. Well, Paul says, you know what? I've read the whole Bible, cover to cover, forwards and backwards. I've studied every word, and I believe the whole thing. And, you know, there's people today that say, well, I hold to the New Testament, but I don't believe in the Old Testament. Well, then you're not a Christian. What are you going to do with all the times where Jesus quotes the Old Testament? What are you going to do in the New Testament where Moses and Elijah show up on the scene? They represent the Old Testament. Moses is the law. Elijah is the prophet's. Well, Paul says, I believe it. I believe it all. Look at what Paul believes. He tells us, verse 15. Having a hope in God in which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. We spoke about this last week, but Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is made up of two groups of men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, they're guys that believe in angels, they believe in spirits, they they, they believe in miracles, they believe in a resurrection, they hold to all of what we call the Old Testament. But the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in spirits or angels, they don't believe in all the Old Testament. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible. And so there's a difference in theology here that Paul is capitalizing on. Do you remember back at his first trial with these men? He capitalized on this difference in what they believe. Well, he does it again because, well, it worked the first time. And Paul says, I believe in a resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying there's going to be a resurrection for the just and the unjust. Paul is letting us know, everybody, everybody's going to come back in one way or another. Here's a spoiler alert in case you don't know. Not both ways are good. One way is good, and I always say good, I mean it's very, very good, and the other way is bad. Very, very bad. Continue, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present an offering. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, that's important, some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I was stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while I was standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. What Paul just said, he says, when I came to Jerusalem, I went to the temple, and I was worshiping God, I brought an offering. He says, it's during that time that these guys came, and they said I broke the law. Do you remember the original accusation against the apostle Paul? There were some Jews that supposed that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Remember Trophimus, the Ephesian? They supposed that he brought him into the temple. Big, big no-no to bring a Gentile into the inner temple. And with that lie that was told about Paul, that's how the riots start. It was Jews from Asia that made the first charge against Paul. Well, according to Roman law, whoever brings the initial charge, they have to come to court. And if an accuser is, is charged a crime, if the original accusers are not there, then they can be found in temp of court. And they are to be hunted down, and they are to be subpoenaed and brought before on trial. It is really, really bad to make an accusation against somebody and then not show up for court. And Paul knows Roman law. And so he mentions this in the trial. He says, hey, these other guys are here, but where are the Jews from Asia that made the original charge against me? He's saying, they're nowhere to be found. But then Paul tells us something. He says, you want to know the real reason I'm on trial? Do you want to know the real reason why these guys want to kill me? Because I preach about the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I'm on trial because I tell people there's life after death. And he says, I'm on trial because I say everybody's going to experience life after death. And again, some really, really good and some really, really bad. So these guys hate Paul. Because he's preaching about an afterlife and what it takes to get there. Do you know people have that same reaction to preaching today? Because you tell somebody about heaven, they're like, oh, tell me more. Tell me more about heaven. This is so great. Tell me all about what heaven's like. It's amazing. Preach about hell. People are like, whoa. Hey, I I don't like this message. And you tell people, hey, the only way to heaven is through the God-man that you killed And if you don't accept his grace by faith, then you're going to go to hell for all eternity. You preach that message, and people are like, kill the messenger. They don't want to hear it. You know, that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. That's exactly what's going to happen to you. Should you choose to share that message, that's what happens to us. It's all about death and and the life after and what it takes to get to the other side. But Luke gives us a little insight about Governor Felix here. This is Antonio Felix. He's the, the person that has a greater understanding, a greater knowledge, a more accurate, uh, accurate knowledge of the way. So Felix is a guy that understands Christianity. Now remember, Felix succeeded Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's the guy that, that sent Jesus to the cross. I'm sure when they were, they were, hey, give me your debrief. Tell me about your job and everything that I have to do. I'm sure Pontius Pilate said, well, there was this guy named Jesus. And then he said he was God come in the flesh. And so I had him whipped, and eventually we sent him to a cross and we nailed him to a to a crucifix. And he hung on that, that cross for six hours. And just before he died, he he said some things, but one thing he said was it is finished. And he died. And my professional executor took a spear and ran it up through his side, piercing his, his heart, and water came out. My, my guy that kills people for a living, he said he was dead. And so then we took him off that cross, and he was buried in a tomb, and I had the the, the door sealed, and I put a hundred soldiers. Because there were these guys that said they were, that he was going to come back from the dead. So I, I put some guards there. But you know what? He did come back from the dead. He, he was seen by 500 at one time, and then he, right before he went back into heaven, at least that's what his followers are saying, he, t- he told them to go into the world and to make disciples. He says, and now there's lots of people that are, that are running around the Middle East, and there's all these Christians, so do you think Felix was briefed on the case of what happened with Jesus? I, 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 and everything that happened afterwards, I think he had a more accurate knowledge of the way. Keep reading verse 23. When he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, he's talking about Paul, but to have liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some day, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. So he's having Paul give his own little personal Bible study. How would you like to attend that Bible study? Hear from the Apostle Paul firsthand about Christ Jesus? Well, that's what Felix and his wife, Drusilla, were were doing. Drusilla, she is the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. And we've already talked a lot about the Herods throughout this series in the the book of Acts. The Herods are all over the place. And and, uh, this family was a mess. And I've said this earlier, I'm going to say it again. This family was Jerry Springer before Jerry Springer was Jerry Springer. They were wicked. In fact, really, Jerry Springer is too tame by by this family's uh, motto. They're more like what we see in reality TV today. So when I say they're a mess, I'm sugarcoating it. Well, Drusilla, again, she's the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. That means her grandfather is the guy that killed the babies in Jerusalem. Remember when the wise men came and said, Hey, we came to worship the baby king? We heard he's going to be in Bethlehem, that he had all the male babies, two or three or under, murdered. That's her grandpa. And then her great uncle is the guy that had his stepdaughter do a dance for him, and then she requested the head of John the Baptist, so he had John the Baptist head, um, beheaded. So again, if, to say this family's a mess, that's again, sugarcoating it. And so Felix and Drusilla, they're, they're very curious about this Apostle Paul, because after all, they would have known wait a minute, Paul was an up-and-comer of the Pharisees. He would have had a a life of luxury in Jerusalem, but yet he left that to travel the world and tell people about this Jesus. And and then when he's traveling the world, he gets beat up. He he gets stoned in in this one city. They left him for dead. And all the time, he could be in Jerusalem having an easy life. Why would he do that? That's what Felix and Drusilla want to know. Look in verse 25. And he reasoned about righteousness. If you're prone to underline, underline that word, righteousness and self-control. Underline that one too. And the coming judgment. There's the three things. Underline those three things. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So here's Paul, and he's, he's preaching to, to Felix. And Drusilla is that very, very dark, wicked family. That is who is hearing this message. And Paul is preaching about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Just guess for yourself. Do you think that was received favorably or unfavorably? I bet you're right. And the Bible says that Felix was alarmed. If you look at this verb in in the Greek, maybe more accurate translation should be shaking. He was hearing Paul preach about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, and he is literally shaking in his boots. And so Felix didn't really like this message. Felix didn't like this message that Paul was preaching. He said, you know, go away, and when I have more time, I'll, I'll bring you back again. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you share the gospel with an unbeliever, there's a lot of times, I'll say the majority of times, they have the same reaction. People don't like to be told, you're a sinner. That's not a real popular message. But let me say that's the most accurate sermon anybody could ever preach. You're a sinner, and you need to be saved from your sins. And here's what's worse. You can't save yourself. That's not a popular message. In fact, that's not a popular message with religious people. Do you know why religious people don't like that message? Because religion teaches that you can make up for your sins. If you go to church enough, if you tithe enough, if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, you can undo all the sins you've ever done. But the gospel says no. There's nothing we can do. The Bible says that the greatest thing we can do, the most righteous thing we can do, it's a filthy rag in the eyes of God. How many filthy rags do I have to bring God to make up for my past sin? The truth is I can't. I need God's grace. Do you remember John chapter 8? In John chapter 8, there is a woman that is caught in adultery, and the Bible says, in the very act. Well, if there's a woman that's caught in adultery in the very act, where's the guy? Because a woman can't be caught in the very act unless there's a a man with her because it takes two to tango. You know, I think that's where that, mob, that little thing comes from, that cliche. I think it comes from John chapter 8. Don't quote me on that, but I like to think it does. Well, anyways, this lady is drugged to Jesus, and Jesus knows this is a trap. And the guys that drag her to, 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 to Jesus says, hey, the law says that she should be condemned. What do you say? And if you know the story, Jesus stooped down in the sand, and he writes something in the sand, and he stands up and says... He's without sin, cast the first stone. And the Bible says that they all drop their rocks from the oldest to the youngest. And then John chapter 8, verse 10, it says this, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Good word when you're talking to Jesus, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, I want you to note that the gospel demands a change of heart. And a change of heart leads to a change in behavior. Now, if there is no change in behavior, it must mean because there was no change of heart. Now, a change in behavior, that doesn't save anybody. But it's a change of heart that that saves us. But it's impossible to have a change of heart that does not lead to a change in behavior. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this very plainly. Romans 6 verse 1 and 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is saying that if we are truly saved then we can't continue sin. We don't sin so that God could just give us grace upon grace upon grace. No, that cheapens grace. Paul says, by no means. I'll sin. Paul says, no way. Uh-uh. We can't live like that if we're saved. Because if you've been born again, if you've been saved from hell to heaven, then there will be a change in behavior. And that's part of your evidence of salvation. Now, does that mean that you have moral perfection after coming to to faith in Jesus Christ? No. In the very next chapter, Paul discusses his his struggle with his own sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, For the things I want to do, that I don't do, and the things I don't do, that I practice. I don't know about you, Paul's speaking my language on that one. And and, and, and so he's struggling with sin, and then Romans chapter 4 Verse 20, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 24. Paul says this, wretched man that I am. Notice that current tense present. He says that I am. And then he asks this great question. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who wants to know that? I need to be saved. Who's going to save me? Who, who's going to rescue me from this sinful man that I am? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I self serve the law of God with my mind, but this, but my flesh serves the law of sin. There is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I'm saved, but I'm still struggling with my sin. He's saying, now if I live for Jesus, I win, but if I live for Paul, I lose. But that verse one of of, of Romans chapter eight, it's a beautiful promise. He says, I'm not going to be punished. Why? Because I'm in Christ Jesus. So a changed life, demands a change in behavior. But here's the truth, and this is a hard truth. Why, don't some, why doesn't everybody accept Jesus? Because some people just love their sin too much. That's the answer. Because so many people would just rather sin than to give their life to Jesus. And most people aren't brave enough to say that. But that's the truth. Because you can't have God and your sin. You can't have both. And Felix knew this, and he didn't like it, and he chose his sin. Now, verse 25 of Acts 24, Luke tells us that Paul reasoned with Felix. This is how Paul reasoned with Felix. Paul's message was, Jesus is God. You're a sinner, and Jesus, God in the flesh, he came and he died for sinners. Repent and place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. You do this and you will be saved. You know, the Bible says that believers are to give unbelievers a reason for the hope that's in us. That's what Paul's doing. Paul reasoned with him. He thought it through. He worked it through. And Paul opened his mouth. And he tells Felix why and what he believes. Now, this part of the story is really, it's funny when you look at it. Because who's in charge? Felix is in charge. Who's in chains? Paul's the one in chains. But yet Felix is the one who is alarmed. Maybe your Bible says trembling. Why is that funny? Because Felix holds the life of the Apostle Paul in his hands, and yet he's the one that's shaking in his boots. D.L. Moody once said this. He said, if you throw a stone into a pack of dogs, the one that got hit is always the one that yelps. Felix is yelping. Why? Because Paul threw a stone, and it hit Felix. Felix is like, hey, Paul, you know, tell me what you believe. And Paul's like, I'm going to tell you how you can get right with God. And maybe Paul went through some of his theology where he says, if anyone's in Christ, behold, old things have passed away. Behold, old things are new. Luke tells us that Paul reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control. What does self control mean? It means the ability to control yourself. It means exactly what you think it believes. It means the ability to restrain your passions. Now, we all have passions. Passions, in and of themselves, are not bad. But believers have the ability to put restrictions on our passions. We have a restrictor plate that we have on our passions. So, passions don't rule over a Christian's because we have the means to rule over our passions. Now why was Felix alarmed? Because his entire life he has has experienced zero self-control over his passions. His whole life was well if it feels good, do it. His whole life was lived with the throttle wide open. He has zero self-control. And here Paul is telling him how to get right with God and how to exercise self-control. Now remember, Felix is the governor. Paul is the prisoner. So So to say Paul is on thin ice, that would be accurate, right? Felix holds the life of Paul in his hand. And so with that, Paul stopped. He says, that's good enough. We'll we'll, we'll pick it up again tomorrow. No, that's not what happened. Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Paul's letting this guy have it both barrels, right? He's giving him everything and the kitchen sink. Paul is not pulling punches at all. And I think sometimes... I think it's kind of went something like this. Paul probably says, you know what? With all due respect, Governor Felix, you're on that throne and you're judging me, but one day you will stand before God and he will be on his throne and he will judge you. You're going to be judged by a holy God. I say this because Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So here's another question for you. Let me ask you this. Is it loving or is it unloving? Unloving. To tell somebody that hell's coming out of the way if they don't reject Christ, if they do reject Christ. Is that loving or unloving? Or is that the most loving thing you could possibly do to somebody? That there is a God that loves them and that that heaven is waiting for them if they'll place faith in Christ. But if they reject that message, then judgment's coming. Did you know that Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? Why would Jesus preach about hell so often? Because he knows all about hell. He created it. Did you know the devil has no ability to create anything whatsoever? Jesus created hell. And it was created for the devil and the fallen angels. And so he created for them. It's not designed for, for people, but yet that's where everybody goes who rejects Christ. Jesus knew the ramifications, and that's why he's the one to warn people of hell more than anyone else. So I ask you again, is it loving or unloving to tell somebody about hell? I would argue that's the most loving thing you could do for anybody. Now when we share about this, we need to share out of love. We need to share this out of love because we don't want anybody to go to hell. All the time people say, you can go to hell. Really? We shouldn't want anybody to go to hell. If you think like this, I think what you should do is study up on hell, learn about hell. What it's really like, and I think, You will cry at the thought of somebody going there. Right now, and really for the past several years, there's been a trend in most American churches to to really not talk about the gospel, to not talk about sin, or really to redefine what sin is. They'll say all the time, you know, know what, times are different now. You know, the God of the Old Testament was so mean and judgmental, but He's changed. What he called sin, they don't call sin anymore. Because after all, we've evolved. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, we, we talk about that stuff in this church all the time. Well, we do, but guess what? We're in the minority. We're the ones that are out of step. We're the ones that are not up to date. We're the behind the times. Because most churches are not like us. Even in our own town. There's so many churches that are preaching all these other things other than the gospel. Everybody wants to think that our hometown is so sweet and innocent and nice and friendly. And to some extent it is. It really is. I don't want to be anywhere else. But every day we have people that are dying and going to hell. And all the same time, the Christians aren't telling the non-Christians about Jesus. And if that's what's going on, then what are we doing? So with that being said, I'm going to spend our last few minutes this morning talking about the gospel. The word gospel... It means good news. It's the best news there ever was, but before the Bible gives us good news, it has to give us the bad news. The bad news is, we've all sinned. Everyone, you, me, the nice little old lady that lives down the street that bakes cookies for the neighborhood kids to the mass murderer, we're all sinners. Everybody but Jesus has sinned. And sometimes we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. Because that is a term that we like to reserve for a murderer, or terrorist, or rapist, or somebody awful. But no, that, that term is actually an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And the mark that we're to aim for, the moral perfection of God. Be as good as God. And guess what? Every single one of us drew our bow back. And every single one of us let our arrow fly. And every single one of us missed. Some of us missed a lot. Some of us missed a whole heck of a lot. That's me. Okay? We've all missed. But maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a sinner. If you think like that, ask the person next to you, hey, am I a sinner? And if they know you, they'll say, yeah, you're a sinner. And, and, and what's even worse than that, the Bible says that the wage of sin is death. You know, when we work, we expect a wage, and what we earn is that wage for our work. Well, the Bible says what we earn for being a sinner is death. You know, you do the crime, you're going to do the time. Well, the Bible says that's what we get. And maybe you're thinking, well, isn't that kind of extreme, Pastor John? I've lied, I've had immoral thoughts, I have to die? Well, when the Bible says death, it's talking about spiritual death. Physical death is, is where your soul is separated from your body. And when your body is buried, it's put in the ground, and it eventually turns to dust or ash. So physical death is a separation of our body and our, and our soul. When the Bible says the wage of death, the wage of sin is death, it's talking about spiritual death. Not separation of our body and our soul, but of our soul and God. That there is separation between us and God because we are sinners. The Bible says that we are alienated from God. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's enmity between us and God. Why? Because we have sinned. And He is a holy God. And because He's holy, He cannot tolerate sin, He cannot be around sin. And we are sinners. And the, the terrible news is that we will die because of our sin. And then to take it a step further, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But here's the good news. God loves you. God really, really loves you. And maybe you're one of the ones who think, well, pastor, you don't know what I've done. And you know what? You're right. I don't know what you've done. But I know what God has done. God sent his one and only son to die in our place. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to take your place, to die for you. Remember, the wage of sin is death, so God sent his son to die. So Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus died in our place. And Jesus is innocent. You and I, we are guilty. You know, so much of the the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you can read, it's about the the innocent dying for the guilty. Guilty. Because they would take a, a lamb or a bull or a goat or a turtle or a and they would slice its neck. That innocent animal would die in place of the guilty. It all pointed to Jesus. Jesus came and he died as a sacrifice. He's innocent. You and I, we are guilty. And that's the very love of God. That God allowed Jesus Christ to die for my sins. He allowed him to die for your sins. So what's left for us to do? accept it that's it to appropriate this you see our culture has it all wrong our culture thinks well, at the end of our time God's going to have this huge set of balanced scales and he's going to put all your good stuff on one side all the times you were nice all the times you were sweet the times you you treated your spouse nice every time you treated you helped some little lady cross the street that's good but on the other side of the scale you're bad all your evil thoughts, your lies, your times you're stole. And what's going to happen? God's going to weigh this out. And if your good outweighs your bad, well, then you're good to go. But if the bad outweighs your good, well, then you've got real problems. But the problem with that thinking is that salvation be something that we, not that we receive it, but we achieve it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, that, that grace is something that we receive. The Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. You see, if we could earn our favor with God, you know what I would do? I'd be walking down the street going, look at me. I'm so good. I'm so good that God has to let me in heaven. Don't you wish you're as good as me? That's what I would do. But that doesn't get us into heaven. No, it's all a matter of grace, it's unmerited favor. So there must be a moment in your life, a moment of spiritual clarity where you recognize I'm a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from God. But I want Christ. I want Jesus Christ more than I want my sins. I want to live my life for him. I want him to use me however he chooses. My life is a blank check. Use me however you you choose, Jesus. The Bible has this amazing promise, the greatest promise. It says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's not that you have to be a good person to be saved. In fact, it's sinners that get saved. And it's not that you can hope and, mm, man, I really hope this works out. And no, you, it's a promise. You will be saved. So I'm going to give you a chance to accept Jesus as your Savior. You know, Jesus said one day, he says, you're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. Well, the truth is, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And the truth is, you must give Jesus your life. He's God come in the flesh, but he does not not force anybody. We still have free will. Either give him your life or choose the other way. I would ask you to surrender your life to him, to give him your life. And there must be this time where you just call out to him. And maybe for some of you it's right now as you sit there in in your chair, or maybe you're you're online, you're on your couch, you feel the weight of your sin. Jesus wants you to cry out to him. For most of us it's a simple prayer where you say, Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've done the things I shouldn't do, and I didn't do the things I should do, and because of that, I'm separated from you, but yet you love me, and you came and you died for what I have done. Save me from my sins. I give you my life, and I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.